Hello everyone, this is Gary aka Mooncat with an impromptu edition of the Sitcom Club following the very sad news of the passing of Rick Mail, which was announced on Monday this week. I'm going to be chatting with Rob and then George later on. Rob's with me at the moment. How are you doing, Rob? Okay, fine. Thank you, Gary. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. It's It always takes you back when someone's passing is announced before their time. And I was just, I was gobsmacked when I saw the news flash on my phone. And likewise, I presume that you would have just been, you know, uh, astonished when you heard this because 56 is absolutely no age at all. Yes, yes. I, I, when I first saw it um, as breaking news, I actually, I really did feel numb. That's such a performer of um, many ages and at least for past 35 years, known for so many things, had, you know, suddenly died at such an age as 56. Now, in this show, we're going to talk about basically happier times. We're going to talk about all the wonderful memories that Rick Mail has left us with his incredible body of work over the last sort of 35 or so years. And you and I are similar age, Rob, because I was born in 77, you are born in 78. We sort of grew up with, I suppose it's fair to say that we grew up at exactly the right time where we were able to appreciate both the traditional comics I suppose you would say and also the alternative comics and not necessarily feel that we had to fall into either camp and Rick Mail of course was one of the new wave of comics who just made such I mean it made such an impression on so many people and I mean the first time for example that I would have seen him in the young ones I would have been far far too young to actually appreciate the young ones itself I mean I would have been five when the young ones began and so most of my exposure to the young ones would have been in repeats and videotapes and so on later on. And yeah, it was it was a strange set of circumstances where there I was as a very young kid watching the young ones and, and, and liking all the, the sort of the, the, the slapstick that was going on and all the sort of the, the outlandish bits and pieces, as opposed to some of the bits you associate most with Lise Mayer's writing. And yet my father at the time was mature student and he told me that they all used to sit in the common room and watch the young ones and of course they were getting on a completely different level because they could recognize the four of them for who they were as their sort of contemporaries at college and university but when was the first time you would have seen the young ones i would have thought it would have been about a similar sort of uh age maybe the late 1980s when uh the videos started to uh come out of the young ones i would say about 10 years old not quite knowing what it was i mean i was uh brought into sort of rick and aid's work by my uh, brother who's a massive fan you know of everything they've done so seeing this new different type of comedy was really you know it was eye-opening for me it was by new alternative comedians but it had a sense of a traditional sitcom it did so i could understand it on both sort of levels really and from there 
you know, I've just followed uh, his career ever since. I mean, he's done so much and such a breadth of work. The reason that it started with the young ones there is that obviously that wasn't the first entity that brought Rick Mail to the public's attention, but I guess for you and I growing up in the 1980s, and I'm sure a lot of people listen to this podcast, it would have been the first show which people would associate with Rick Mail at that period of time. But of course, he had already been on a show from BBC Scotland a year earlier called A Kick Up the 80s as Kevin Turvey. And that then sort of enjoyed a bit of renaissance of interest later on as Rick Mail became more famous. And just earlier on, I was listening to some of the Kevin Turvey sketches, which I presume you'll have had a chance to, to hear subsequently. I was listening to some of them from the early 1980s, and they're, they're wonderful little monologues. They actually, uh, I got the impression that they, they sort of reminded me a little bit of Adrian Mole. It was like a sort of, it, w- it would have been like if Adrian Mole didn't have necessarily the sort of the, the, the pretensions in terms of like his poetry and his writing and so on, there was a lot of little sort of turns of phrase and, and how he sort of, his relationship with other people and so on was quite reminiscent of that. It reminds me of uh, Ronnie Colbert's monologues. Now, for those who don't know, that the two Ronnies were also produced by Paul Jackson, who later went on to produce the young ones. So there was a sort of um, similar sort of... It was like a sort of punk version of Ronnie Colbert's monologue, Kevin Turvey. Like you say, it had the breadth of language, the little tones in there, but it it was a similar sort of thing, but speaking to in a different language to a younger generation where they could actually understand rather without adding in sort of not pop culture references, but it was a sort of it was a social commentary reflecting on what was going on in the uh, country as a whole in the early 80s. Yes, and there are elements, of course, in Kevin Tuffy which then find their way into the character of Rick. And it's funny because, of course, I could never, I could never have appreciated this when I was watching the old ones initially, or even appreciated it when I was watching it as a teenager. But later on, when I actually sort of followed my, my father's footsteps and became a mature student myself, I I, I recognised so much of Rick, the character, in a lot of my fellow students. I mean, quite a lot of the people you sort of see associated with particular causes and so on, covered with the, the badges and sort of... Yeah, it it's, it's more than just a caricature. I can imagine that in lesser hands, that role could have been played... It's a straightforward caricature, just sort of spouting, you know, it's like slogans and occasionally the odd funny line and so on. And they would recognisably be that kind of right-on sort of crusading but also cowardly figure. But Rick Mill just, just, he turns it into a three-dimensional character. He actually turns him into a real person. Well, I mean, you can say really with Rick Mail's characters, all the way from um, Kevin Turvey, it has got a sort of linear type of thing where Kevin Turvey turned into Rick, who turned into Richie Rich in Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, who then turned into Richard Richard in Bottom. They, 
they it's almost like all these characters were it was almost like the three ages of one person or you could say brothers and cousins of the same family but they have got the same sort of sense and feeling to them now obviously a lot of the tributes over the past couple of days have focused on the young ones and bottom because i guess they're the shows for which he's most remembered but as you touched on there phil rich and catflap is sort of the the forgotten part of that trio i guess you can say because yeah you do have a sort of evolutionary process going on there and you've also got links with the earlier shows you've got nigel planer in the second show you've got christopher ryan in the third show and so on and, and yeah, that, that one right in the middle, it just seems to have been forgotten about a little bit. And it's probably the one you'd say is, I guess, the one with the most overt sort of message because it's all from the pen of Ben Elton and it's a pastiche on the the old guard, I guess you'd say, as sort of personified by Tarby and Brucey and so on. And, yeah, there are the elements of it now which seem a little bit dated because, of course, in a way, that sort of that, that battle has been uh, fought over so many times and the old guard went out of favour and then sort of now they've sort of come back in and now they're sort of revered again and so on. So watching it, it's a bit more like a sort of uh, a period piece. Yeah, it, like you say, it is a period piece, you know. You have to remember that uh, Bruce Forsyth and Jimmy Tarbuck were the biggest stars, you know, around that period. But also, really, with Rick Mail, that he could also mix it with the sort of light entertainers as well. Appearing in Cannon and Ball, for example, you know, you would never have thought that someone like Rick Mail would have actually, you know, combined with Cannon and Ball, but you would have thought they would have been totally polar opposites, but there they were. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up, because that is an interesting little instance that, yeah, unless you were aware of that, you you really wouldn't expect to see Rick Mail suddenly appear in uh, a show like Cannon and Ball, and I suspect perhaps the the in-betweener there was Paul Jackson again. Yeah, I, I was going to say, but obviously Paul Jackson also worked on Cannon and Ball as well when he went to a Land Weekend Television, you know, he he wanted to bring in the sort of what we call alternative comedians into light entertainment. He wanted to form some sort of evolution to make sure that they, the alternative, would become the mainstream, as they have become. They are the mainstream performers now. Let me ask you about a couple of things which are lesser known. For example, Rick Mill presents the show that he did for Granada in the mid nineteen nineties. Now that's such a good little series. I think there was two runs of freezes, six episodes in total, and that showed off Rick Mill's incredible ability to take on different roles. It gave him sort of elbow room to show off his skills and to be able to take on some quite some quite challenging roles, particularly the one I'm thinking of is the one where he is the homeless man who's mistaken for a screenwriter, and that's quite uh, it's quite dark in places that episode and it's, it's also quite touching as well 
in various other series, you know, he would make guest appearances, say in Jonathan Creek and other series like that. It allowed him to do a breadth of work. If you were to ask anyone, his most famous work would be comedy, but he also had this um, serious drama edge to him as well. I mean, Rick Mouse Presents was, you know, you could say that it was a revival of the sort of comedy drama. I, you had not seen that many performers actually appear in comedy drama for many, many years. You could have said it was maybe been at least 10 years or more. You know, seeing a, a comedian attempt this. You know, you, you'd had people like Dave Allen who had appeared in, um, in sort of straight drama. Uh, Les Dawson, you know, they were known as stand-up comedians, they were. But Rick Mal had, had the ability to be able to take you on the journey in a uh, one of his comedy dramas and by the end leave you emotionally drained what are your memories of the other marks and grand rick mail sitcom because of course everybody refers to the new statesman and new statesman was obviously very very successful and absolutely captured the zeitgeist of the time but another series which has been sort of forgotten about a little bit is the series Believe Nothing from 2002. Well, Believe Nothing, I mean, you could say it's a following on of the Alan Bistard character, but obviously it's that he did create a new character in, in, in Adonis Canute. It sort of took the same sort of sympathy, but put it onto philosophy, which made the character more interesting. Where it was written by Gran and Marx, you know, they, it was like a different take on it. It was almost like trying to pick out sort of philosophy and public relations and go beyond what people know now as public relations and things like that to to actually pick away the meat at the bones of the whole thing. It's a really, really good little series and it's worth tracking down. It did come out on DVD a few years back and it is worth tracking down because, again, it's, it's just been sort of forgotten about a little bit but it's yeah there's some very very some really really good little moments in that and it, it sort of it combines a little bit of the slapstick humor which he was of course known for in bottom which we'll come to shortly and but but also it had those sort of satirical elements as in new statesman now i suspect that you and i the show that we most associate rick mail with is bottom and I remember seeing the first episode when it went out initially in September of 1991 and sort of hoping that it was going to be good, hoping that it was going to live up to the standard of the young ones. And in actual fact, I think it surpassed it. I think it's, I think it is definitely Rick Mill and Adrian Emerson's finest work. And it's such, it doesn't get the credit that it deserves 
partially I suspect because it's sort of more associated now with the the, the physical humor and you know sort of those elements which were more prominent in the stage shows for example but it's such a well-written show and the breadth of references in it and just how well structured that it is and how tightly edited the scripts are as well when you have a look at the script books you can see you know quite a few pages of dialogue have then been trimmed from the final cut to then keep the energy keep the pace going and yeah it, it's it's a show which i absolutely absolutely adore I mean, it is a reflection of the early 90s life. You know, what was going on really, you know, is is really where it came from was um, where Adrian Edmonton and Rick Mail, you know, they co-starred in Waiting for Godot at the Queen's Theatre in 1991. It's taking the sentiment of that production and adding in the slapstick of the young ones and the sort of references of Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. Like I say, it's a third age. It is where they had developed all the references and everything which had had even come from, from a comic strip. You could say it is a very smart series, it is. People think it's slapstick, but, you know, the premise of it, yes, it might seem ridiculous at times, but it was a reflection that they brought to the show. They allowed themselves to, you know, take an almost realistic view it was yes, there was uh, strange events which happened, but it took the actual writing to a different level. It's a show which is particularly quotable, I find, and it's a show which usually—I mean, well, no, usually—about it every single day, I've got quotes of Richie and Eddie's going through my mind, <laughs> and. <laughs> I can think of particular times when my brother and I, for example, have exchanged text messages with bottom quotations that were particularly apt uh, one period or another. And it's a show which, which gives gives Rick Mill the opportunity to really absolutely just perform at the highest tempo and yet he gets in nice little bits of subtlety. He gets in the you know, the, the facial expressions and the movement of the eyes he you know, sometimes will sort of emerge towards camera so that you know perhaps Eddie's in the background and so you can sort of see the scheming that's going on in Richie's face. And certainly in the first two series, there are a few sort of elements of pathos. It never whacks you over the head with it. It never comes on strong. But there are a few elements in there where just for the tiniest, tiniest little moment, you know, the the hijinks sort of cease and, you know, it actually gets you feeling sympathetic towards the characters. And then, and then of course, then something is just going to come along which then knocks you over the head <laughs> and it carries on. You certainly do feel sorry for, you know, for Richie and Daddy, that their life has, you could say, yeah, their life has turned out not how they want it to. Taking, for example, say, the same thing with Steptone Son, they're actually 
Same as um, Harold and Albert were stuck together. You know, Richie and Daddy are stuck together. You know, they can't imagine one without the other. You know, because they've actually had a bond for so long now that life's sort of beaten them over the head. Not physically in the slapstick way, but that something has happened to them that, you know, they do feel sort of downtrodden by their own circumstances. Are there any particular performances of Rick Mills, any particular shows or any particular performances that you in particular admire of his? Well, I would say that the... You know, the, the, to see Rick Mailer's at his best, you had to see the sort of um, really live stage show uh, bottom where Rick Mail could quickly lib with lines and things like that. The stage show had a structure, but certain things would happen. Okay, they would make gaffes and things like that. I mean, for. On one occasion, I was what the stage show in 2001, The Odyssey. One moment where I was watching it at Portsmouth Guildhall, they were doing a routine where Rick hit a across the face with a fire extinguisher, and basically, you know, he he Rick did it so hard that it broke Adrian Edmondson's glasses, and basically Adrian Edmondson had to carry on. They made a whole routine out of it for almost ten minutes, just dead living. You know, they stepped out of character. Obviously, it wasn't meant to happen, but, you know, they they just basically dragged in the audience. And Rick Mal could do that, you know, live. He was just absolutely sensational. It will be an ongoing regret of mine that I never got to see Rick Mill live. And I saw a lot of tweets following the news people who said that they'd seen him live and some people had seen him live way, way back in the early 1980s. And it, it's, it, it is a cliched term and it's something that you, you hear you know, fairly often, but I don't think there's any doubt about it in Rick Mill's case, is that he exuded funniness to the point where when he'd arrive on stage, he had the audience laughing. And he was just a naturally funny man. And I think that that comes across. I think that when people, when performers are putting it on, so to speak. When performers are then turning on a switch, then you, you sort of, you can sort of sense it. Whereas Rick Mill appears to have always enjoyed the roles that he's playing. And I've not heard a bad word. I've never heard a bad word about Rick Mill. I've never heard anybody say anything about him that was negative. I remember him appearing, I think it was on Pebble Mill once. And he came across as, 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 as actually quite sort of, timid in a way. He was, he was very, very shy and very, very uneasy about being himself on a chat show. And so unlike the characters that he excelled at playing. They invited Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson on to Going Live. You could say that, you know, Rick Mail's appeal has... You could say that it's all been across the ages. I mean, the generation of young children who saw Bottom, you know, older people who'd seen the young ones and even people older than that who had seen him in various other things and they appreciated his his skills as a comedian and also an actor as well. So any final thoughts from yourself Rob as to how best you will remember Rick Mail and what particular shows you think that you'll be most likely to revisit time and again. 
But uh, I think that the memory of now that I will take is of a very versatile performer. Rick Mel presents is is the most ideal thing if if you were going to watch something of uh, you know to see his acting side. But the show which I'm actually remembering for really is Filthy Rich and Cat Flat. For you know the way that he created the character Richie Rich, and he made it his own. You know you could you could believe that he was larger in life, but you didn't really believe that he was a real person. You could believe that this type of person, you know, that he was playing would exist. Well, thank you, Rob, for sharing your thoughts with us. Now joined on the line by George Grimwood. Hello. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today, George. Now, let me ask yourself, first of all, as I just asked Rob, what are your particular memories? What are your first memories, first of all, of Rick Mail? Where do I begin? I guess it begins, in many respects, with VHS copies of The Young Ones in the local library. Usually it would be three episodes on a BBC video. VHS, and not at an early age being entirely aware that there are anything but those episodes that feature on that VHS. But then again, and this is where it all ties in, it could have also been the grim tales that Rick narrated and sat on a chair with moving arms and so forth, or it could have been when I was sneakily sitting there watching the first series of Bottom Air whilst my parents were in another room. Or it could have been The New Statesman when, after the end of Series 3, not being aware, of course, that it had actually been out for some time, hence watching it on VHS, that, as far as I was aware, as a young boy, that Alan Bastard had been shot dead. I wasn't aware that there was a Series 4 for some time. (laughs) And I actually wrote a letter and sent it to, as far as I remember, his agency going Alan Bastard can't be dead surely I was quite young but yeah it it really could be any of those times to be honest well of course that was an inside job well yes we'll have to cover that in the near future for sure yeah and I've just been talking with Rob there just now about some of the the better known shows obviously the the, the sort of triple pack I suppose you would say of the young ones Fulfridge and Catflap bottom. But I'd like to talk with yourself a little bit more about some of those performances and shows which are less widely known. Now, the Dangerous Brothers, for example. What are your memories of seeing them? Did you see them, for example, on Saturday Live, or is it something that you subsequently seen on, say, video releases? Now, it's lucky you've just asked me that. Now, I wasn't aware you were going to ask me that that question about the Dangerous Brothers, but, funnily enough, I have spent this evening watching the hour and 20 minutes or so on YouTube of their appearances for the first time. And what it was, what drove me to that, was I always held back on watching The Dangerous Brothers because I thought, well, that's a little bit of Rick and Aid that I hadn't experienced previously, and I thought I'd save that for a rainy day, and today seemed appropriate to do so. So I'm fresh from watching those for the first time. I've been aware of them for some years, and certainly 
was aware that it was a template for Richie and Eddie. It was a pleasure to see that. And having not experienced that previously, I haven't seen much of Saturday Live, apart from some spitting image clips, or specifically one where it was Chris Barry doing Ronald Reagan. So to sit there for an hour and 20 minutes and see all the clips of Rick and Aid as the Dangerous Brothers was great, especially for the first time. But then again, I also remember, just sprung to memory, that in regards to Kevin Turvey, I first experienced his monologues audibly. They were copied onto a cassette tape from a VHS by a friend of the family and given to me to listen to on my Walkman at the time. And they were played in the car and I used to listen to those. And then I realized there was a visual for it and I found the VHS. It wasn't for a number of years after that until I discovered Green Door and it was great to revisit those again. I remember it must have been early 90s, I would have thought, that they released Man Behind the Green Door on VHS or at least the copy that I had. It was sort of a red cover. I've got it somewhere in my collection. There's such a body of work and so many different parts of my comedy memory relate back in some shape or form to Rick Mail. Even in regards to George's Marvelous Medicine, Jack and Nori and Rick Mail Presents. I remember being quite unsettled by Rick Mail Presents. I remember that there was an episode, I believe it was the Mickey Love one. Yes, yes, yeah. And finding that quite hard to watch because it was, if I'm not mistaken, the rise and fall of a TV personality, more or less. Is that right? That's right. It's it's such it's such a good episode that I remember writing an essay about that at the time. I think it was a, like an English course I was doing, and I watched that tape repeatedly. And yeah, he, he he's that's such a good performance of his because he in in one part he's got this sort of avuncular, outgoing persona that he has to project at all times. He's a sort of the the Huey Green type figure. I mean, Hugh Green himself is actually in the program and, and claims that Mickey Love has sort of patterned himself upon himself. And on one hand, he's got to keep up this persona in public, and yet everything's just crumbling around him. And he's also simultaneously trying to sort of bounce back from an earlier setback. And he just, he manages to convey all that so well. It's a lovely piece of work. And, and I agree, that it is it's also quite uncomfortable at times. Yeah, I remember being very unsettled by that. And I think very much in the same way with The New Statesman, even discovering the second series was me being unsettled when he was shot. The third series was even more unsettling to discover when he was abandoned in Siberia. And believe it or not, I didn't realize that there was a special until further down the line, Who Shot Alan Bastard? I just thought the series reset itself. When I finally discovered Series 3 on VHS, I just thought, oh, what, they're just starting afresh? They're not explaining it. The special Who Shot Alan Bastard episode, I didn't see that for a very long time. I was going to ask you about the comic strip. Which of those in particular most caught your eye? Because, of course, that, that's, again, it's such a varied selection. Fistful of Traveller's Checks definitely stands out for me because, aside from being very cinematic in many respects, for a comedy special. It's also 
great to see the Western fantasy played out. I mean, I remember seeing the documentary behind the comic strip many years later, and there was a very telling moment where I believe it was French and Saunders saying how it was essentially boys living out their Wild West fantasies whilst being out in the desert filming that. And it was around that time as well that I started embracing the Western genre generally. And so I think that had an effect on me. I remember Dirty Movie as well, which... Yes! Yeah, that was it's one of the ones that it doesn't seem to get referenced a great deal. I mean, whenever you see comic strip spoken of in any kind of clip show, for example, then it's always going to be Five Go Mad and Dorset. That's the first one that's spoken about. And then you might get something like, for example, say later on, you might get something like... Bad News? Well, no. I'll come to Bad News in a second because that's one that's a particular favourite of mine. But Dirty Movie, yeah, that, it's, that's such a... It's such an odd piece, that, as well. And, and, and again, everybody's got sort of scope to be perhaps more absurd than usual and, and the way that Rick Neal sort of conveys the, the just the overall sleaziness of that character and just the, just the little the little details such as just rushing down the stairs and just waiting for the postman and the whole way that he sort of his contortions when he's in the, the projection booth and so on. A great soundtrack accompanying that as well, if I'm not mistaken, that gives him the scope to be as sleazy as he well as he likes. Bad news. I like bad news tour. More bad news. Definitely my favourite comic strip and one which I must have genuinely must have seen a dozen times and a number of times I've quoted that in conversations and so on and just I mean probably the line that I've quoted most of all uh, no matter what the circumstances it doesn't have to be relevant is why can't you be Roger Daltrey? And Again, it's 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 nice that he's got that role where he effect, effectively gets to play two parts because he gets to play the part that he's playing on stage, for which he's not really cut out. And of course, then you get to see him behind the scenes, so to speak, in, in his sort of his his home life and what have you. And little things like, for example, just little details like when he's sat there being interviewed and realizes that his long-haired wig is just a bit fall off and just puts his hand up to stop it. Just little little things like that and when he's asked then by Jennifer Saunders she, she, she says to him about his role in the band and she says so 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 what are you doing now and just the, the sudden look of fear on his face where he attempts an answer quickly and then just stops and said look you said you weren't going to ask me the question. I love the mannerisms especially the ones to camera that he does both when it comes to mind in the Young Ones and Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, there's a few moments like that. There's one where he speaks to SPG in The Young Ones and does a bewildered look at the camera. And there's, there's the same in Filthy Rich and Cat Flap where I believe it's one of the two Johns goes, how do you spell tit? And then he just looks at the camera going, huh? I mean, also with Bottom, I remember distinctly watching, as it went out, very sneakily, the sex episode, which may, may have been the first episode, is that right? The sex episode? Oh, you mean the one where they, they get the pheromone from the sex shop? Mm. Yes. I remember seeing that when it went out, and I remember feeling very naughty for having seen it as it was going out. I wasn't meant to have seen it when it was going out, and it wasn't until 
further down the line when my dad had gotten into the same humor we kind of bonded over it we went to see bottom live 2 and although it was playing at a couple of other places that we could have went to it had to be hammersmith that we went to see the show because it was set in hammersmith and i just felt that if you're going to go and see bottom anywhere it has to be set it has to be where it's set so we went there and I think my dad was a little bit overwhelmed, perhaps, at the amount of enthusiasm that people had towards the show. And I remember we bought the T-shirt, which I will be digging out in the next day or two, of Bottom Life. And I remember getting changed before the show, just sort of putting it over whatever I was wearing at the time, or swapping it from whatever I was wearing at the time. And I remember, I must have been... I would say about 12 years old, I could be wrong, but around that age. And I remember a adult walking past me going, now that's a bottom fan. And I remember being touched by that at the time and thinking, oh, well, there you go. And yeah, I'm very glad I went to see that live at the time because it was, I haven't been to many comedy gigs. I think the only other one that stands out is seeing the League of Gentlemen live many years later. And to see what I would perceive at the time, sort of my heroes, Rick and Aid, together on stage, live. And it was just great to experience. It's such an intrinsical part of my comedy childhood to see Rick and Aid and generally all of those guys in and around various shows and films of that time that it just all blends into one. One thing that I particularly like about Bottom, the, the energy of that show, and it's interesting watching episode three of series one because that one has more the look of a sort of a pilot episode and plays on the pathos element a little bit more whereas the rest of the episodes in that series like for example the one they've opened with in the sex shop and so on is sort of full-on slapstick and in many ways they've sort of gone full circle then with the stage shows that they've sort of come back to that style to conclude with we are men of science. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not even going to. Spo- I'm not even going to spoil that by trying to give it a description. If you don't know that line, then just you'll, you'll see it in episode one. I can't possibly do it justice to describe it. That but, that was the first line that I remember laughing out loud on. I I didn't do it any justice there. Almost, I'd like to think slightly on purpose. I didn't do it justice because, as you say, it, it needs to be seen. I can't think of too many performers who have had such an incredible body of work and who are also so well liked. You know, you, you get performers who are very versatile, not always necessarily the nicest people off stage. And then you get people who are incredibly well liked, but you know, they may be somebody who's known for one particular thing, say stand up or whatever it may be, but never had anybody say a crossword about Rick Bell. Never. Uh, anybody who's ever met him I'd love to have met him, and I never did, unfortunately. But I've I've never heard anybody say anything other than he was just a lovely guy to be around. And he does. I think that, like I said to Rob earlier, when I think this comes across in his work, that he really enjoys his work, and he doesn't look like he's ever putting it on. He doesn't look like oh, I'm going through the motions again. He looks like he absolutely is having a ball in those live bottom shows. And he always has something to bring to the table, even in the quietest of moments. He can always do something to attract the audience's attention whilst something else 
might be slowing the pace. It's just this kind of element that he can always bring to the table of keeping the audience occupied even when something else is going on. He does it frequently in The New Statesman. He does it, I think, perhaps in Bottom, it's not as noticeable because everything is always going on constantly. It's a very, as you say, fast-paced, quick-on-the-draw show. The Young Ones, there's always something else that comes out at me when I watch episodes of The Young Ones. And much like many of those shows from the 80s that were released sort of on BBC video. It wasn't really until the DVD era many years later that I discovered episodes of most of these shows that I wasn't aware of before. It was the same with Blackadder. And with that in mind, I didn't see a fair amount of the Flashheart Blackadder Goes Forth episode for some time until I saw them on DVD because we had a recording that cut out halfway through or started halfway through i should say it's not very often that you get a performer appear in taking black out of two as the initial example appearing in one episode of a sitcom and really not just not not upstaging as in in, in a bad way i don't mean as in sort of you know stepping on people's toes or you know encroaching on people's lines or whatever but just stealing the show to the point where one of the trending topics on Twitter today was Lord Flashheart, and that's a character that's appeared twice in a show which has, what is it, 24 episodes? Mm. And, yeah, I mean, there's not very many examples you can think of where somebody's somebody's character has appeared twice in a long-running show over four series is seen as an integral part of that show. I personally would have loved to have seen Rick further down the line, maybe in a few years' time, I'd have loved to have seen him perhaps provide the unabridged audiobooks of George MacDonald Fraser's Flashman series. I think he would have been absolutely appropriate for that. And of course, that's who Flashheart was based on, for the most part. So, closing thoughts then, George, what will be your sort of abiding memory? I'm, I'm guessing in your case, it's probably going to be the fact that you've you've seen him live. And... I guess that must be, it's never memory to treasure. Certainly, and I will be digging out the t-shirts soon. And I think that there is such a body of work to explore. There are still uncharted territories for me to investigate. And I'm pretty sure somewhere along the lines, there will be shows and episodes and appearances that will surprise me. It was only in the last couple of years, as I said, that I discovered Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. And maybe it's because it's the freshest in my memory, perhaps, but that certainly stands out for me as a favourite. Bottom certainly highlights it. The Young One certainly highlights it. It's very difficult to pinpoint because Rick Mail didn't just appeal to the adults and the children. He also appealed to the children within the adult. So if you're growing up with Rick as a kid, Grim Tales, Jack and Ori, or in your teenage years, Bottom and rediscovering the young ones and Drop Dead Fred, perhaps, and everything. And then as an adult, you go back on those and you discover more of those and you rewatch them and suddenly more jokes make sense and it's still laugh out loud. Then that's the sign for me of someone with a universal appeal. And with that in mind, Rick may always stand out for me as someone who 
for the first 30 years of my life has always made me laugh. Indeed. And I can't really put it any better myself. And I know it sounds twee and what have you, but what the hell. Thank you very much indeed, Rick Mail, for all the laughs over these years and for being a part of all of our childhood and adulthood. Thank you very much to yourself for listening and we'll be with you again soon.